So last week, as, as, as you all know, because if you have kids, they were home, uh, last week was spring break. And so uh, Thursday evening, Andy and I drove up to Emporia and we met some friends of ours who live in Topeka. So we went up to Emporia, they came down to Emporia. We do this every once in a while. And we um, hung out, we went to a couple different restaurants and we ate uh, different places. By the way, the little cinnamon roll things with the, with the dipping stuff at Applebee's, Hmm, so good. Uh, I ordered uh, some of that like for the table and I don't know if anybody else ate any because I just kept eating them. They are, they are so good, so addicting. Uh, anyway, there's a point to all this. Uh, we're talking with, uh, with our friends, Dave and, and, and Susan. Andrea went to college a little bit with Susan uh, at, at K-State, woo-hoo. And, um, and then Susan eventually followed Andrea down to, uh, who followed me uh, to Ozark Christian College in Joplin. And so, and then she got married to Dave. We've been friends for a, a long time. So we're, we're sitting there and we're just talking about life and different things. And Dave started talking about uh, a friend of his who just died in the last year, year and a half, um, alcoholism, just, just destroyed his, his body, eventually um, passed away. And he was, he was telling us about his friend's son. He managed a cell phone store up in the Topeka area in a part of town that wasn't the best. And one day, I don't remember how long it was, a year and a half, couple years ago, something like that. He, um, he was finishing up his shift. Another employee, a female employee had come in um, to take over for him. He had gone out of the store and gotten into his car. But before he had left the parking lot, he noticed that um, suspicious character had gotten out of a vehicle in the parking lot, has, pulled his hood down up over his face and was walking into the store with what appeared to be a gun. Um, this young guy, uh, just like instinctually, he just got out of his car, he ran into the store, he ran somehow, or kind of ran up to the back of this guy with the gun, he did some kind of jump kick thing and he knocked the guy down and the gun went out of his hand but only momentarily. The assailant was able to um, collect himself, grab the gun off the floor and, and shoot this young man, eventually uh, killing him. And I think he, he fled the store pretty quick. Um, th- that, that story, Dave and Susan said, like, like barely made the news in, in Topeka, you know. Um, wasn't really much about it. And so, we talked about the effect that the, the loss of a son had on Dave's friend. We, we, we talked about how it affected his, his family, how it, it, it really helped, um, it kind of drove him like even more to the bottle and, and then how that spread and affected his family and eventually his own life. And we, we, we speculated about, about what the young man like could have done, maybe should have done in that situation. But then we're like, like he just instinctually ran in there to save this other person's life. He, he saw a situation that could have been very bad and he just acted. He responded to it. He willingly, ultimately sacrificed his life just for the chance to save another another person. 
Well, four weeks from today, we'll be celebrating Easter together right here. And we're gonna talk about the, the empty tomb, how Jesus purchased salvation for us by dying on the cross. And we often talk about Jesus at this time of year and, and his death as like a, a, a have to, right? Meaning like Jesus had to die in order to to save us. He, he had to die. He had to shed his blood so that our sins might be forgiven. He, he had to go to the cross so that we might be able to cross from death to life. He, he had to die to be obedient to his father. We always talk about, or it seems like we often talk about Jesus' sacrifice and his death as this like had to thing, like he had to do these things. And all of those things are, are, they're really true. Like he had to die to accomplish all of that stuff for us. But Jesus could have chosen not to die. He, he could have left us. He could have stayed out in the car in the parking lot. He could have saved himself the pain of death, even though he would have condemned us all to death. Like Dave's friend's son, Jesus made a choice. Jesus willingly sacrificed his own life for our lives. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk through three different conversations that Jesus had with his disciples as he was making his way back to Jerusalem to prepare these guys for his coming death. And, and these are all stories that if you've been in church for very long, like you've heard these stories before, but we often read them as like one-sided. Like this is what Jesus said, this is uh, what the disciples heard, and we talk about it from the disciples' perspective. I, I learned this new phrase the other day, it's called the lullaby effect. And it, and it means that when you hear a story so often, you get so used to it and comfortable with it that you kind of don't pay attention to the details anymore. You're like, oh yeah, I've, I've heard that story before. I know, I know how it ends. And so these are all stories that we've heard before, but they weren't one-sided conversations. Jesus was not only preparing his disciples for his death and what was to come, Jesus really, I think, was preparing himself I think in, in his human flesh, he was talking to his disciples, and in a way, he was kind of psyching himself up for what was about to happen. He's like, hey, I, I want you guys to know what's going to happen so that when it happens, you're prepared, and, and, and it's another testimony to who I am, but really, I got to talk about this stuff. I, I got to get this stuff out. Like, this is heavy for me to carry. And so as we make our way through these stories, we're, we're going to see Jesus and, and maybe the, the way he responded in those moments in kind of a new light. We're going to shed a little bit of light on us and our own situation as well. Um, because really, the king, Jesus, didn't just die for us or for our sin. He died because of us, because of our sin. So before we jump into the text this morning, um, let's just have a moment of prayer. Father God, we're going to look at some scripture today that, that, that we maybe have heard a lot of times before, and, and really every Sunday we come and we share, and we hear stories we've heard before, and it can be easy for us to 
to kind of tune out in, in, in the next few minutes to go, yeah, I've heard that. I, I like, I know the end. Um, yes, this is terrible that Jesus died, but I, but I know that on Easter, we're going to celebrate the empty tomb. And, and like, I've heard this before, and, but God, would you just give us a moment here as we share together to, to really look at what's going on, to try and put ourselves in the place, in the sandals of the guys that were standing there with Jesus, and maybe even to see a little bit of how Jesus felt in, in these moments as he was heading back to Jerusalem. And, and I often think about, it, like it's, it's crazy, in a moment we can step in and do something heroic that even maybe might cost us our lives, but Jesus knew as God, exactly what was gonna happen. He understood the pain he was gonna endure. And that had to be difficult. And so God, give us a moment today. As we uncover the text, as we talk about what it means to follow and what it means to lay down your life, God, um, just help us to understand that in a new way and, and maybe have a new perspective as we leave today. Thank you for being with us. Father, and thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna be in the Gospel of Mark today, and there's this interesting thing that happens in the, in the middle of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark is 16 chapters, and in chapter eight, uh, like the whole story shifts. So the first eight chapters of, of, uh, of Mark, Mark is talking about Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus had about a three and a half year, roughly, ministry where he was telling people about his father and he was healing people and he was doing all these things. Um, and so Mark covers like three and a half years of Jesus' life and ministry in the first eight chapters. And then he totally shifts gears. And the last eight chapters of Mark are, are really about the last three weeks or so of of Jesus' ministry and, and life. So it's, it's almost half. I mean, like this huge section of, of Mark is focused directly on just the last few weeks of Jesus' life. And, and all of this kind of turns on one conversation. There's one moment where Jesus is talking to his disciples and, and, and it's so, it's such a huge thing that everything in the, in the book, everything in the gospel of Mark just shifts. Like it just pivots. We're talking about this and all of a sudden it's like, boom, everything is focused on getting to Jerusalem and, and Jesus' eventual death. And so I, I want to set the stage um, for what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are headed kind of toward Jerusalem and they're kind of taking the long way around. They're gonna do a few things and go to a couple places, but they're on their way. They're headed to the destination of Jerusalem and Jesus knows that in just a couple weeks, he's going to enter Jerusalem and with, with this Palm Sunday, we know the story, comes in, he rides the donkey in, everybody's excited. And in seven days, like he's gonna be killed. Like nobody's gonna like him. Everybody's gonna hate him. Everybody's gonna want him dead. And there's this huge change there in the last six or seven days of, of the story. But Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem and, and he's just like, he's teaching and he's healing and he's doing all these incredible things. It's, in fact, it's the beginning of Mark chapter eight where Jesus um, feeds like several thousand people. And so he's like in the midst of all of these incredible 
miracles. And so um, for the last three and a half years or so, the disciples have listened to him teach. They've watched him heal the sick and the lame. They've, they've watched in amazement as he's cast uh, demons out of those who were possessed. They've, they've listened to him talk and share things about the scripture that they never thought of and never heard before. And, and they watched him do like these incredible things. He brought dead people back to life and he, he fed thousands of people with just a single plate of food. And the disciples have watched all this going on. They've listened to it all happening. They've had countless conversations over the last three years with each other and probably with people kind of outside of their group about who Jesus actually is, who this guy might actually be. And the more that they see him do and the longer they listen to him teach, they become more and more convinced about who Jesus is. But they never really talk to Jesus about it. Like it's that elephant in the room. Like we, we all, like we think we know who you are. We think you're the fulfillment of this thousands of years of, of promise and prophecy, uh, but we don't want to jinx it. <laughs> we don't want to bring it up. We don't really talk to you about it. We'll talk to each other about it. We'll talk to other people about it, but we don't just bring it up uh, to Jesus. And so um, they've, they've speculated, they've wandered. They may have even taken bets about who, who like you could just see, like the disciples were, some of them were pretty shady. You could see them back behind going, okay, I got 50 bucks that he is the Messiah. And it's like, I'll take that bet. And there's going on and on. They've speculated about all this, um, but it's never really come up in conversation with Jesus until we get to Mark chapter eight, where Jesus asks them some specific questions. And then all of a sudden these guys have to like, pick a side. And so uh, here in chapter eight, Jesus asked two questions. The first question he asked is, who do people say that I am? And, and that's, a, that's a pretty easy question. So they're just like walking along and, and Jesus is like, hey guys, um, you listen to people and the things that are being said. Uh, who do other people say that I am? And then all of them, all the 12 guys, they kind of chimed in and they were like, well, some people think you're John the baptizer and you've come back from the dead. And some people think you're Elijah, the great prophet. Some people think you're, you're maybe a minor prophet that's, that's come back. And basically, you're anybody but the guy who you, who you are, right? Like, there's all these different options, but nobody is... Nobody's committing. Like nobody's saying, hey, look, people thinking you really are the Messiah. Like nobody says that. And so Jesus asked him a second question. He says, okay, well, you've seen me, you've listened to me, you've watched me, and so who do you say that I am? You're, you're the guys who are closest to me. You've seen the most, you've heard the most, you've witnessed the most. Who do you say that I am? And so the apostle Peter, in Peter fashion, he like speaks up for the rest of the group, and he gives the correct answer. In the, in the ESV, it says, uh, Peter responds, you are the Christ. And, and, the, and the word Christ, we've talked about this before, the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a Greek word, it's Christos in, in the Greek, and it, and it really means Messiah. And you go, okay, that doesn't clarify things at all. What does the word Messiah mean? Well, the word Messiah in, in, in Hebrew and Aramaic Greek, it means God's anointed king. And so if, if you remember, I told you a while back, anytime you see the word Christ in the Bible, just replaced king, 
So when, when you see Jesus Christ, you can just say Jesus the King. And so um, Peter is like, look, you're the guy. We, we know who you are. We've watched what you've done. We've listened to the things that you've said. We know that you're the promised one of, of God. You're the king from the lion, line of David who, who God said and the prophets all said was coming back into the world. Like you're, you're the guy, you're the one. Now, this is the very first time that anybody has publicly said to Jesus, I think you're the guy. And it's this moment that everything begins to shift. Jesus then begins to unfold this whole rest of the story that he's been waiting to share with people, but he had to make sure that his disciples understood who he was before he began to share with them what he had come to do. And we know, because we've looked at the story before, what Jesus came to do was not at all what they expected. It's completely different. And so let's look at Mark 8, 31 to 34. Here's what uh, happens. And so um, they've, Peter has just given this good confession. You're, you're the king. You're God's anointed. And so Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's a reference to him. It goes back to Daniel 7. It's really huge. Someday we'll, we'll look at that. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And, it, and at this point, just so you know, nobody's listening. Nobody hears anything else that Jesus has to say. These first few things, like they're expecting Jesus to say something completely different than what he actually says. And so they've tuned out by this point because they're so caught off guard by what he says. He's killed and after three days rise again. And, and he said this plainly. So he just like, he just blurted it out. He's going to do this verbal vomit. He just goes, here it is. Here's everything. But Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, this word rebuke is the same word that's used when Jesus quiets the demons. This is, it's a serious word. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus looks at the rest of the disciples. He, in turn, rebukes Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine being like a Jesus follower and having Jesus just go, get behind me, Satan? Like, whoo, that's, that's pretty big. Oh, man, okay, like, check yourself before you wreck yourself. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a big deal. Uh, you are not, he says, setting your mind on the things of God, but you're looking at things from a human perspective. And so as soon as the disciples come to this realization that Jesus really is the promised king, Jesus immediately begins to tell them, not of his plan to retake the throne of his father, David, and to reestablish Israel as the powerhouse kingdom of the world and to bring all the disciples along with him to rule the nations of the world. That's what they expected. That is not what they get. Instead, Jesus says, okay, you recognize that I'm God's anointed king you need to know that this king came to lay down his life for his subjects. Completely unheard of. 
And so Mark quotes Jesus as saying that he will suffer many things, that he'll be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, that he'll be killed. And then, like I said, they're not paying attention that three days later he would rise from the dead. And if you continue reading Mark, that's exactly what happens. It begins about Mark chapter 14. And you, and you see all the things that happen in, in, in verse 8, 31, 32, where Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. That's what happens in chapters 14, 15, 16 of the gospel of Mark. Jesus is arrested. He's beaten, he suffers at the hands of his own people and the hands of the Romans. He's then brought in in front of the Sanhedrin, which is made up of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, and they all reject him as the king. And and this is a whole huge thing. Do, Do you know what the chief priest's chief role was in Jewish life? They were the ones who looked at a a sacrifice, a lamb, and determined whether that lamb was worthy of being sacrificed on behalf of a person's sin or not. They were the ones who said the lamb was perfect to be killed. And it's it's an odd thing, right? Because you would think the not good ones should be the ones who are killed. No, in Jewish life, it had to be a perfect lamb in order to be sacrificed. And so these are the guys who would look at a lamb and go, yes, this one meets the qualifications and, and it, can be, it can be sacrificed on, on your behalf. These are the guys who shed the blood of the lamb in order to pay the price for the people's sins. And they're the ones who are sitting in judgment of Jesus. And they thought they were condemning him to death because they thought he was a terrible person. But really by the sheer fact that they allowed him to die, meant that they accepted him as a sacrifice. It's a really crazy thing God's working on here. So like this had to happen. Jesus had to go before the chief priests. They had to allow him to be sacrificed because that was how a sacrifice was offered. And and then Jesus is given back to the Romans. He's beaten some more. He's killed. And then, of course, we know the story. He's raised back from the dead. And so the Jews had been waiting for thousands of years for God to fulfill this promise that he had made over and over to send this new king to rule Israel, to overthrow their enemies, to reestablish his kingdom on earth. But none of what they had been waiting for could happen if the king is dead. All right, so in their mind, we don't understand it in our U.S. democracy kind of thing, but in their mind, when the king dies, the kingdom dies. And so they finally get to this point where they're like, you you are the king, you're the one, you're the chosen one, you're God's anointed one. This is an exciting day. We're ready to storm the gates of Jerusalem, to take over the nation, to drive out the Romans. Like, we're with you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, no, this king is gonna die for his subjects. And they're like, no. That, that can't happen. No king suffers for his subjects. His subjects suffer for him. The, the elders and the chief priests are the ones who inaugurate the king, not the ones who reject the king. When the king dies, the kingdom dies with him. And so they're like, Jesus, like, what's the point? This is not 
possible. And so Peter does what, what Peter does. And, and, and you could just see Peter like, like grabbing Jesus by the arm. You know when your mom or dad grabbed you by the arm, you, you're, you just knew, right? I don't know what I did. I don't know what I said, but it wasn't good. I'm in trouble. Peter like grabs Jesus by the arm. Now the text doesn't say that. I'm just extrapolating here. And he like goes, get, get over here, Jesus. And he walks him away from the rest of the disciples. And he's like, look, Jesus, I don't know what you're talking about, but this isn't gonna happen. Like, you're crazy. This is not the way this story is supposed to go. And the text tells us that Jesus, he's like listening to, like Peter's taking him, talking to him. He's like, uh, like slow your roll, Peter. And he looks, he looks back and he sees the rest of the disciples. What do you suppose they're doing in that moment? They're, they're, like their whole world just like shattered. They don't know what's going on. And then Peter takes Jesus aside and they're like, what's happening? What? And, and Jesus is like, okay, I've, there's a moment here. I've got to handle this. I've got to make sure they know who the king is and what the king has come to do. And so you can, you can see Jesus like just reach over and grab Peter's arm and take it down. He's like, just, okay, Peter, <laughs> look. Get behind me, Satan. Like you're, like you're not, this is not, the, you're not thinking right. You're not thinking clearly. We need to have a little talk. I'm sure there's more that went on. Like, like this is a difficult moment. And it's difficult because of this. Because sometimes the plans of God don't look very appealing to us. And that's where Peter and the disciples were. But how could this be the plan of God? The king can't die because then his kingdom is, is over. This is, this is not a, like this is not what we signed up for. This is not what we want. We are not interested in this at all. But, but this is a recurring theme in the Bible and, and really probably our lives as well. There's a lot of times when the plans of God don't look very appealing to us. Think about a, a, a few of them. The Israelites are caught between the Egyptian army bearing down on them, and they're standing at the edge of the Gulf of Aqaba. There is nowhere for them to go. That's not a very appealing situation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing outside of the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to the king's idol. This is not a very appealing moment. When, when God told Moses, hey, I want you to go back to Egypt where you've been like banished, and I want you to go back back to Pharaoh's mansion and have a chat with him. Like, um, that's not very uh, appealing. Or how about when Paul goes to the, to the sailors and the soldiers and the travelers on the boat that he was on heading to Rome, and he's like, hey, look, I just want you to know that the ship we're on is going to be destroyed. It's going to run aground, and, and it's going to be destroyed. Like, we're all going to survive, but we're going to have to swim a little bit. This is not a very appealing situation. And so many times the situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in are completely opposite of what we had expected God to do. God, I, I thought this is what you were going to do. I thought this is where we were going to go. I thought that I was going to turn my life over to you and then everything was going to come up roses and it was all going to be great all the time. And, and we get to these places where we realize like there's way more month than money and the relationship or job that we, we thought was going to solve all of our problems, well, that just fell apart and now I don't know what to do. And sometimes the places that God leads us don't look very good from the outside. And maybe they look even worse at the beginning. 
And there's this moment where we have to, we have to go, okay, God, this, this doesn't look good, but I'm gonna trust you. Like, you're God, even though this situation doesn't look very good. And, and so this leads us to this next exchange. Jesus turns, he looks back at his disciples. They aren't sure what to do. They aren't sure what to think. They're like, Jesus and Peter are gonna throw down here in just a minute. And Jesus has just dropped this bomb. And now Peter is demanding that, that Jesus take it back. And he's like scolding Jesus. And, and Jesus is just like, no, no, Peter, like you be quiet. You shut up for a minute. You listen. In this moment right now, you're acting just like Satan because you're thinking like a man, you're not thinking like God. And so in this moment, we find this really interesting thing. Like Peter was being the exact opposite of Jesus in the situation. Jesus was saying something that did not make any sense at all in, in the world. This is not the way this story is supposed to go. Jesus was being obedient to God's plan, even though it, it wasn't a very appealing plan. Peter was being disobedient to God's plan because he couldn't comprehend what God was doing. And so we see these two things playing out. In, in real life, what Jesus was doing didn't make any sense, but it was, it was obedient because God was involved. And in real life, Peter's like, this doesn't make any sense and I'm gonna try and stop it. And Jesus is like, no, you can't, because if you try and stop it, you're gonna be working against God. God's doing something here. Like, none of what Jesus said made sense from a human perspective, but none of what Jesus came to do could be accomplished by human means. I heard a preacher the other day say something, I might, I might butcher it, but he, but he basically said, God never asks us to do what only God can do. God only asks us to do what he knows we can do. And the example he gave was when Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead. And, and he, he asked the men that were there to roll the stone away. Because he knew in, the, in what's going to happen, the only participation they can have in this, in this moment is to roll the stone. You can roll the stone away. And so he said, roll the stone. And they rolled the stone. And then Jesus said to Lazarus, come out. So God asks us to do only the things he knows we can do. And then he says, I'll take care of the things that you can't do. And I think that's pretty cool. He doesn't expect us to do things that only he can do, but he does expect us to do the things that we can, that we can do. And the Bible is full of stories of people who didn't understand this. And so they tried to accomplish God's plans through a different process. Um, and, and then the one that comes to, to mind really quickly is Abraham and Sarah. So God comes to Abraham. He says, Abraham's like an old man. He's 100 years old. Sarah's like 99 years old. And he comes to them. She's been barren her entire life. There's a huge, interesting thing we could talk about there, but we'll save that for another day. Really crazy. And, and so God comes and he says, hey, um, Abraham, you are going to, uh, you and Sarah are going to have a, a child. And through that child, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. And, and Abraham and Sarah are like, uh, yeah, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, this great, like Sarah, like number one, Sarah can't have children. Number one, I'm a hundred years old. 
Like this is, this is near, this is nigh on impossible. Uh, I don't know how this is going to happen. And so they couldn't imagine it. And so they tried to accomplish God's plans through another means. And we have Hagar, this Egyptian servant in their house, and she gives birth to Abraham's child. And so there's all these stories in the Bible where we as humans try to accomplish God's plan, but we try to do it through our own processes. And so many of our stone stories could be included there, right? Like we tried to gain finances or friends or get a fiance or, or, or we tried to do those things on our own because we didn't, we didn't trust God to accomplish it or we didn't want to wait for God to accomplish it. And so we're just like, go out on our own and do our own thing. And so Jesus was doing what seemed counterintuitive, but was actually obedient to God. Like it didn't make sense in, in our understanding, but it was God's plan. And then Peter was suggesting what, what seemed completely obvious. Yeah, yeah, don't die. That would be a really good way to, to end this story. But that was actually disobedient. So the death of Jesus, it was an act of obedience, not incompetence. It wasn't a mistake. Jesus going to the cross and, and, and dying, it didn't just happen because well, there's a series of events and we just couldn't, we couldn't stop it. it. It it happened because Jesus was being obedient to the Father even when it didn't make sense in the world. So when when you follow God, there are going to be times, maybe lots of times in your life, when the plan of God seems to be leading you towards something that just isn't very appealing. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. This seems difficult, God. I, I, you're going to put me in a situation that I'm going to be uncomfortable and I don't like doing that. I don't want to be there. But that's what happens when we look at life through human eyes and not holy eyes. When we look at the, at the world and, and, and we judge things based on what we can accomplish and what we can do and what, what seems reasonable to us, instead of going, we serve the God of the universe who can accomplish anything and can do everything. And if he's called us to do it, if he wants it to be done, he's gonna make it happen. And so the things that Jesus said about his, his suffering and death, they don't make sense because the disciples were trying to accomplish God's plan through a human process, and, and it just, it can't be done. And so they couldn't see how Jesus' death would actually bring about the fulfillment of all the prophecies, a kingdom without end, a, a nation into which all other nations would come, freedom and forgiveness and life. They saw death at, as the end when really it was the beginning. And so I just want to ask you today, like what challenges are you facing in, in your life? Maybe this last week there have been some challenges. Maybe you know there's something coming up in the next few days that you're going to have to, to face. What challenges are you, you facing? Because, because I'm going to tell you there's going to be a moment in the midst of that challenge where you're going to be tempted to accomplish God's plan by some other process. You're going to be tempted to not trust God about this thing or, or that thing. And you're going to go, I can't see a way for this to happen. And so I'm going to make my own way 
for this to happen. But I wanna just encourage you, don't give in. When you look at your situation with human eyes, you're only going to see human outcomes. You're only gonna be able to see the things that you can accomplish or that, that might just happen by some, some happenstance. But God isn't bound by the way the world works. See? God doesn't rely on the way things happen or the way they're supposed to happen or what's going on. Like he works outside of all the things that are going on in this world. And you will never accomplish the will of God by the ways of man. If, if you wanna accomplish God things, you're gonna have to accomplish them in God ways because there's just no other way to do it. And, and, and too often we look at the things that we're facing and we like, I, I know this is God's will and this is a God, I really believe this is what God wants to do, but he's just not doing it fast enough or I think he might mess it up or something's gonna happen. And so I'm gonna try and accomplish it from another, another way. When that happens, when you and I try to accomplish the will of God in the ways of man, we do exactly what Peter did. We find ourselves walking in the shoes of Satan. Jesus didn't have to die. He chose to die. He willingly ran back into the store and allowed himself to be killed, not only to save our lives, but to show us how to live, how to love God and love others in obedience to God, even when, even when it doesn't make sense. Obedience is doing what is asked, even when it doesn't seem achievable. I don't, I don't think I can do this, God. And, and God goes, yeah, I don't pay you to think. <laughs> I, I pay you to... I pay you to obey. Like, I, I, this, is, this is all I need from you. I just need you to trust that I'm the God who can bring the dead back to life. I'm, I'm the God who can feed thousands of people with a plate of food. I, I'm, I'm the God who heals the sick and the lame. I, I'm the God who accomplishes things that you can't even understand. Obedience is doing what is asked even when it doesn't seem achievable. And so this week, our, our encouragement, our challenge this week is to set our minds on the things of God even when they seem impossible. Instead of looking at our situations and our circumstances from the eyes of men, even when that seems most probable. And it's hard. But it's why the Bible says we need to walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being a God that is bigger, that is over, that is in control of everything that we face in this life. Forgive me for the times that I have not trusted you to do 
what only you can do. And, and I've tried to accomplish your will in my own way. God, help us all to let you be God and then us just to do what you have called us to do. And, that, and that's just to obey, even when what you've called us to doesn't, doesn't seem achievable. You can do everything. In fact, that's why scripture says we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength because it's not our strength, it's yours. And so God, we just thank you for loving us, for calling us not to do the impossible, but to trust the God who can accomplish all those things and can make the impossible not just possible, but probable. Thank you, God, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.